You can see my award-winning climate comedy show spoilers at a festival near you, provided you live near or are going to McHuncliffe or Wells Comedy Festivals. More dates added soon near you, conceivably, who knows what might happen. And if you are at Mac, come and see ComCom Redacted live at 4pm on the Saturday. Go to stuartgoldsmith.com and click the very attractive banner image to find out more. Hold up, what was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. This is a podcast from ComediansComedian.com. This is the Comedians Comedian Podcast. Hello and welcome to the show. I'm Stuart Goldsmith. This is another show recorded live from the Gilded Balloon at the Edinburgh Festival 2013, uh, in which I'll be interviewing David Baddiel, uh, and also in which he turns the tables on me, rather. Uh, without any further ado, here's David Baddiel. Thanks, David. I haven't quite grown out of the, the... I sort of feel like I should do a slightly formal handshake when inviting people. Why? Because I'm an OAP. <laughs> no, no, not, not at all. Not okay. at all. Um, hello, everyone. Thanks uh, for coming. I really liked it when you said, can I just have a small whoop for the podcast? And they really took the small seriously. Yeah, absolutely. I that, was, absolutely. that was very good. Well, well, what we haven't quite got our heads around yet is that, or I haven't got my head around yet, is that the, the very loyal core audience of the podcast... They're are all lo- here tonight. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. They're, uh, they're loyal in so much as they really love the show, but they're not necessarily prepared to travel here Ooh. and or pay for it. But yeah. those, those of you that are, <laughs> are more than welcome. Mm. So we were talking um, just before we came in uh, about the, uh, the amount of podcasts that you've been doing here and you were quite keen that this wasn't another show in which (laughs) you end up having to do loads and loads of material yeah well that's true well just it's just one thing a lot of people ask uh, journalists and stuff uh, about what it's like uh, coming back to doing the fringe after Mm -hmm. well actually I haven't not done the fringe for 16 years me and Frank uh, Skinner did Badil and Skinner Unplanned here just as a lunchtime show before it was a TV show at the Pleasance in 2000 but it's the first time I've done it as a stand-up show since 1997 so that's 16 years and a lot of people ask me what the differences are and one small difference, but actually is quite a significant one, is of course the last time I did it properly, it was pre-broadband. Believe it or not, it was it was dial-up. Uh, <laughs> you know, it took a long time to get pornography, and um, and as a result, uh, there are so many of these podcasts now. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a. Uh, I said so many of these podcasts now, like uh, an old man, but really it's, uh, <laughs> the podcast thing. But. Um, yeah, it's a real, and it's different in terms of both in terms of that and in terms of the speed by which it seems to me, you know, you can get stuff out mm-hmm. about your show or a buzz can happen about your show because of Twitter and because of the internet in general. Mm-hmm. You know, so I have been doing loads of these, but this particular podcast, one reason I did want to do it is that Stuart was telling me that it is a show about comedy. It's an, a lot of this podcast, they basically want you to come on and do your set for nothing um, <laughs> and uh, uh, so I thought I'm more interested in coming sure. on doing the show uh, and uh, not being funny um, and, and possibly getting a chance to talk about funny 
massive walkout. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. Absolutely. Um, well, one of the things that is obviously notable about the show that you're doing at the moment, which is Fame, not the musical. George Square uh, Theatre, seven thirty. Nailed. Quite it. easy to get there from here. Yeah, <laughs> and, yeah. It's, and it's on directly after this. Isn't it, it is as on well, directly so. after this. Perfect yeah. timing. Um, yeah. But you have described it in a, a previous interview, and I, I saw it myself uh, a couple of nights ago as a halfway between a lecture and a stand-up. Yeah, routine. I wish I hadn't done that because it makes it sound a bit dull. Yeah, no, no, no. Well, I don't, I don't think yeah. it was dull at all. But yeah. uh, well, what I really meant was that um, what actually happened was the way that the show got happened, because uh, another thing people have said to me, someone said it to me today on a BBC4 interview, said, why did you decide to come back to stand-up? And like a lot of things in this life, I didn't decide to do anything. Mm. You know, I don't know whether people generally make, unless it's a very, well, unless they're Hitler and they decide to invade Poland, most people don't actually have that sort of front-of-the-head way of living their lives. And what happened with me was I was hosting a show on Radio 4 called Forethought, uh, which I still do, and that is a really great show, I think, because mm-hmm. all I do is introduce brilliant people, and they talk. It's the only thing you'd only get on Radio 4 uh, about one subject for 14 or 15 minutes. It could be anything from the history of glass to a nurse talking about how awful it is working in terminal children's wards. I mean, kind of amazing stuff. Sure. And it's part of this culture now, which I think has a, it's a kind of strange cousin of stand-up, which is what Ted has done and a few other things which yeah. is sort of stand up ideas mm-hmm. not necessarily comedy although they can be funny sure. so I got asked to do one of those I think because I'm on Forethought which is called 5 times 15 at the Tabernacle in London which is in West London and it's the same thing uh, mainly writers come on and they talk for 15 minutes just about something they are passionate about okay. or know about and I thought I got asked you that I thought what can I talk about I'll talk about fame because I kind of know a lot about fame uh, just by virtue of having been in and out of the British public eye over a long period of time mm. so I did it and I wrote it differently from the way that I've written stand-up before because I thought of it as this kind of different culture. So I didn't write it with a view of, like, where's the next gag coming from? Uh, And I didn't write bang, bang. I just thought, I've got something to say about fame and I'll try and do it with storytelling and with argument and blah, blah, blah. I did know it was comic. I knew there would be be laughs, but I didn't expect to hit laughs in the same way. Uh, And then it got loads of laughs. I mean, really big laughs yeah. uh, and I thought oh maybe this is a way back into doing it not that I've been desperately searching for it mm-hmm. but I thought I guess I thought you know because I had actually done uh, uh, some stand up on the London cabaret circuit uh, I'd done four gigs just in clubs two years before okay. just half an hour of new material completely the same stuff that I did before mm-hmm. observational comedy not particularly linked by anything except crowbarring one sure, thing to another yeah. uh, and, and that had been fun but it didn't feel to me like it was any way moving the form on from what I'd done Okay. 12 or 15 years ago whereas this when I did it I thought oh, this will be different okay. to what I've done before so what it actually is is it's totally funny uh, mm-hmm. all the way through it's totally got big I mean some of the laughs are as big or bigger than I've ever got before I mean really it's hard bigger, big woofs but it is all about fame so mm-hmm. it is a concept album sure. it is all true because all based on stories absolutely stories that have happened to me in the world of fame and it does include sad bits and serious bits and sure. you know other stuff that I probably wouldn't have included in a straight stand-up show and it's got a screen did you and it's got a screen it's got a which, screen yeah. nice which yeah. uh, a lot of stand-up now has doesn't it a lot quite, of yeah, the form of stand-up since you last were kind of regularly doing stand-up shows yeah. at Edinburgh has changed to encompass a lot of those 
those elements. Well, I did use a screen actually last time I was here. I used okay. it not as much, but I used it a bit. Um, and I did a routine called Bills of Mortality, which yes, is these I've things that, I yeah. found that had lists of what people died of. That's what they used to publish in the 16th century, 17th century, is lists of what people died of. And they are literally things like fell from the steeple of St. Giles Cripplegate 1, and they're like <laughs> plague... A hundred thousand. And, and so I, I would bring these up and talk about sure. them. And that was quite early on for using okay. a screen, I think. Yeah. yeah. Did, you, did you find when you were writing this from the point of view of not needing to write funny, when you were writing for the original mm. lecture, did you find yourself at any point thinking, you, having said that, oh, then it, then it became, it got loads of laughs. Mm. Did you find yourself thinking, oh, bollocks, I wish I'd written the old stand-up like this, you know, to, to write, to follow the idea rather than to feel chased by the need to get laughs? Uh, maybe, a little bit. Um, I mean, insofar as, um, you know, people really like this show, not that they didn't like it before, but actually I was never a critically revered comedian in any way. I was always... Okay a successful comedian and really kind of popular and selling out big venues and all mm -hmm. that stuff. But, uh, you know, me and Rob, neither me, in my incarnation with Rob Newman nor with Frank Skinner, mm -hmm. were we comedians who particularly liked by, you know, journalists, sure. really. And and they do like this one, which is not particularly something that I, well, I am pleased about it. It would be stupid mm -hmm. to say I'm not, because but my interest is not them. But I do think my interest is always in trying to express in stand-up or in performance who I actually am. And I mm. think at some level, considering that I went away to write books and films and stuff like that, I guess I haven't in the past quite applied my kind of narrative abilities to stand-up. I see. I'm, I'm okay. good with narrative. I'm okay. good at telling a story and I'm good at creating a whole piece that's got a start, a middle and an end sure. and all the rest of it. And I guess, yeah, I hadn't really done that before with stand-up. So is, so is the self-expression that we're talking about, is that that's obviously different in stand-up to when you're writing... I mean, even when you write your novels, there's different characters in them, but yeah. still an expression of yourself and your ideas. Yeah. So what's the difference between that sort of writing and the stand-up writing you've been doing more recently in um, terms of... Because you're, you're writing a narrative about yourself. And yeah. it's, it's all... I mean, I assume it's all well, true. It's, well, it's, like, well, in terms of it being true, it's a really key thing. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, I do a gag at the sure. start, which I might as well do over this. Is a bit, but it, I talk about... I, I want to express that I, the show is true, and I talk about the fact that I do happen to have a kind of OCD, sort of low-level-on-the-spectrum thing about truth, which is I hate it. I can't veer any way from the truth. Although, uh, a few weeks ago, I was typing something into Google, uh, and my son, who's eight, he was leaning over, and for some reason, I don't know why he said this, he said, Dad, what would happen if we typed the word sexy ladies into there? And I said, I don't know. <laughs> um, and, but that is true. That story itself sure. is true. And it is there to say, you know, this is very true. And the truth thing is important, because the show really is about the fact that fame will create of you a version out there. Yes. There is a version out of you, and it's not who you are. Uh, Erica Young said this thing. She said, fame means millions of people will have the wrong idea of who you are. Sure. And I would say the more famous you are, the more wronger it is. That's not a good word. Yeah, yeah, no, I understand, yeah, the yeah. more wrong you will be got. The more famous you are. You are. And uh, as a person who is OCD obsessed with the truth and the truth mm -hmm. of who I am to some extent, I mean, people will tell you, my friends I think would tell you, quite wearying in quite a weary way that I am incredibly me I never change who I am okay. I can't as a result I'm a very limited performer I can't do any accents okay. uh, I'm the kind of comedy performer who if you see me with a costume on you just think well that's David Baddiel with a costume on that's sure, he doesn't sure. meld at all he's yeah, the person okay. he's meant to be and uh, uh, and so that's just who I am and then it's weird 
and comic and disturbing that there is a version of me out there that is not me and that people have in their minds and sometimes come up and rub against me and whatever. And to some yeah. extent, the show is about that. It's about that gap. Do, do you think there's a, a parallel with the, the stand-up that you wrote about yourself when you were writing stand-up 15-plus yeah. years ago? Um, because I, I find in the stand-up I write, it is, it's me and it's about me and it's true, but there are kind of corners that I'll cut or... or uh, locations I'll change to, to, to try and find I mean one way of looking at it is to try and find an, in, an internal truth in it mm. and another way is to make it funnier to make yeah, it sort of, of work were you were you so obsessed by the, the truth that you weren't changing anything in any of your anecdotal stand up or were you prepared well, in the to, old days yeah in, well, I, I, har I hardly do I mean, mm. I should, yeah, this, this is a strange thing to say in a way, but um, I had lunch with Sarah Millican yesterday, mm -hmm. uh, who I don't really know, but who's really, really lovely and, and really, really funny. Uh, and then when she met me, uh, we hadn't been able to find each other uh, for various reasons, and I was looking around for her in George Square, and then she arrived, and she told me that she'd just been by the sausage van, mm -hmm. and a man had said to her, oh, do you want a really extra long brat verse? And kind of winked at her, but he had a six-year-old boy next to him. She thought <laughs> it was a bit weird. Uh, and anyway, so that was funny and then when we had after we had lunch she tweeted about that but she said just blah 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 like it had just happened yes. which is probably the right way to do it comically because yes, it seems I a bit see. weird I would have written three hours ago yes I see I would, okay. have, I would have felt weird about writing just blah 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 because of my weird slightly compulsion compulsion to always tell the truth yeah and has that has that got in the way of, of ever of, of stand-up? It's certainly got in the way of my life, yeah. <laughs> without any doubt. It's got in the way of my life. I've said terrible things, not terrible things, but true things. I, should. I mean, you know, it's one of the reasons why mm. I think me and Rob Newman split up in the... Um, you know, I mean, there were lots of reasons why that happened, but one of the reasons was we weren't getting on. Uh, he became very, very fixated on f uh, certain issues sure. with fame, actually, and sort of like whether we should be called Badil and Newman or Newman and Badil and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. And one of the things he then insisted on was that we were interviewed separately uh, because, you know, he felt he had things to say that were different. And that was all. I said, OK. So then he would get interviewed separately. And then the journalist would say to me, so how's, how's it going with Rob? And I would say, oh, I think he's gone mad. Yeah, right? OK. And, and I actually thought that, but I shouldn't have said it. It's not helpful to say that to journalists. Sure. But I didn't really understand and still don't exactly the process of censorship or self-inhibition. Sure. And that's partly to do with comedy, can I just say? I think it might be interesting. that, you know, when I've done ad-libbing and, and Badil and Skinner Unplanned particularly, mm -hmm. the way I do that show and kind of the way I've done all comedy when I haven't written anything is I let the stuff come at me from the audience or whatever's mm -hmm. happening or whatever and I return whatever it is I'm going to say as if my mind is a squash wall. Yes, it, or okay. a brick wall that okay. someone's thrown a ball at. It just comes straight back. And, and that is really how I live my life. That is how I've become a comedian in a way, which is because I don't have self-censorship. And it's not a good way to live your life, but it can be useful for it's a comedian. It's very useful for, for yeah. a comedian to yeah. have those skills. Yeah. So in the, in the, just to digress into the, in the writing of your novels, yeah. how did that process work for, in terms of a squash in terms of the, so the, the squash mm. wall analogy. Yeah. Um, it's a bit different in writing a novel. Sure. Um, I mean, because I think, uh, you know, that is how I am as a, as a performer and particularly as a performer for things like unplanned or improvisation mm -hmm. of any sort or just being on stage. And, you know, when I first started comparing the comedy store, which I was doing in the late 80s, for crying out loud, mm -hmm. it seems like it was obviously a long time ago, but that was how I moved from being a comedian who just had... 20 minutes that okay. he stuck to rigidly sure. and somebody would compare the comedy store and got heckled out or whatever and I thought oh this is what I'll do I'll just 
the first thing that comes into my head will come and I will trust that it will be funny. And and it doesn't mean it's always funny, but something will come if you just keep going. There is something about a a friend of mine who's a street performer said to me years ago about... um, dealing with audience situations and improvising with an audience is that if you keep batting things back if you keep saying the first thing on, yeah. on your mind then you, they don't all need to be funny because every so often one of them will be the yeah. audience will laugh and then afterwards they'll only remember the stuff that <laughs> they laughed at that's, that's useful but also the honesty of it I think it just it responds better than pre-prepared yes. heckle put downs or whatever but or I think with writing um, well I just I do think novel writing can be incredibly self-expressive as well, but then obviously you do have to put yourself into other characters mm. and you do have to think of a story and all the rest of it, which is not true anymore. Um, and although I have fucked people off with stuff in my novels that they are convinced is stuff that happens to me, okay. happened to me in my life, but let's leave that out. Um, <laughs> but um, I, I, I don't know exactly what the answer to that is. I guess the answer would be that I if you've got this type of head that I've got, you have a very convinced, instinctive idea of what it is you want to say. And that just travels in a different way into a novel. You feel like, okay, I know in my own way, with my own little tuning fork in my head, that this is right. This is the story I want to tell. This is the sentence I want to write. So is, so is the, the, when you do sit down and write stand up, is that kind of halfway between that process of the improvised stuff and the longer form novelization? Um, I suppose it is. I mean, now to say it's different, this show is different from how I used to write. How I used to write stand-up was really like, I've thought of a funny thing, I will write that down, and now I'll think of another funny thing, and I will crowbar it together. Or a funny thing has happened to me, and I will tell that story, and the way I would tell it tended to be ultra-truthful and whatever. I still included lots of stories. um, But there was a bit more, you know, what was that? That oh, that's the end of the round. Bell. Yeah, I thought so I've got a dinner service at yeah. the right. Uh, but uh, but yeah, I um, what is, is that? that? Is there a is bicycle that in here? Is that someone? like phone? a 1940s bicycle <laughs> in here. Oh, fantastic. A man rolling around selling onions. Nope. Okay. Well, that's really well, weird. Let's see if it happens again. Uh, what was the question? <laughs> um, we were talking about the. Uh, all I can think of is a man driving a bicycle yeah, around. Yeah. Sorry, um, has anyone been we, listening? Can you yeah, we were, the we were talking about um, about the writing of stand-up in, as something in between those two. Oh yeah, uh, well, I, I, yeah, oh, ane- uh, anecdotal uh, stuff and kind of things that have happened. How to long? You. Uh, I, I should know this, but how long have you been a stand-up? About nine years. Right, um, and when did you do your first long show? Uh, three, no, four years ago. So when you came to do your first long show, how did you find the process of like? Because twenty minutes of stand-up, sure. you can kind of cobble together can't yes. you from just here's some funny things I've thought of Absolutely. and I'll find a way of coasting from but then when you do a longer show it starts to be more like novel writing I think. yes yeah I think so I, I was trying to tell a story I was trying to tell a story about my background as a street performer and also the fact that I uh, enjoy going to fetish clubs oh, do you? And, and yet I'm a very boral, uh, boral, boring normal person boral is a fabulous Freudian it's slip isn't it <laughs> <laughs> it's, got, it's got boring and oral in it. Fantastic. I am tremendously boral. I, I, wish, I wish I'd thought of that for a title when the show came out. But I was trying to, I realised that for all of those sort of supposedly exciting elements of my life, I'm a fleece wearing, you know, sensible shoe. I have to say, I wouldn't look at you and think that bloke is into BDSM. Well, that is that was very much It's not angle. a version of the Noel Gallagher or whatever it is. Yeah. Gallagher group BDI. <laughs> it stands for, bond, what does it stand for? Uh, uh, bondage sadomasochism bondage, domi- do- bondage dominism right. domination and sadomasochism okay yeah, yeah. you're a man who knows this uh, this isn't the direction <laughs> and given that of these interviews this is one my mum will almost certainly be listening to <laughs> yeah. um, but, but that was the point I, I, people say that to me a lot that I, I look very normal I 
can sort of pass undetected yeah, as a normal through person. Through us, but, through the normal people. Well, yeah, maybe. But yeah. Um, but equally, you know, I went to circus school and I kind of breathe fire and all that kind of uh, all that kind of stuff that right. maybe you wouldn't expect as well. So in the writing of that show, yeah. I had some jokes that were about those things already. And then I tried to sit... I'm and, sorry, no, look, I'm really interested in the comedy. I have to know what kind of fetish clubs you went to. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, yeah, I just you said to... you didn't want to sit and do material. No, I'm not doing material. material. I, that's me being honest. I yes, can feel no, a sure. compulsion to sure. ask you that and Absolutely. not be interested in the fucking stand-up. So I'm yeah. sorry. <laughs> I, I, I couldn't I help myself. I went to very much the vanilla end. Are you familiar with okay. that term? Is that what, an ice cream club? Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> the, uh, the, much the, the lighter end of the, the fetish circuit. I wasn't a sort of hardcore person at all. Okay. But uh, I, uh, in this show, for example, I told a story about uh, being spanked without being asking for it. I was there on a sort of reconnaissance, <laughs> you know, checking the thing out. And someone snuck up behind me and whacked me on the bum with a riding crop. Really? Which really hurt because I was yeah. only wearing a nighty. So... <laughs> it, <laughs> Is so that, that true? That's true. That genuinely happened, yeah. You were wearing a nighty. I was wearing a nighty. So time, when you yeah. say vanilla, it was yeah, quite, quite advanced. It was, it was quite covered up. I mean, a nighty is... I mean, well, it was practically... Secret. But why were you wearing a nighty? Because I was experimenting with what I wanted to wear in that environment. Yeah, but a fucking nighty. <laughs> yeah, it was what, fun. What, like a Winsiette nighty? Like, what, an I don't old know style. what that means. No, but well, like I, a, I don't know either, but it it's what I've heard it... <laughs> I've heard it. I'm, like I'm compelled to that. point out that I don't know what that means. Yeah. No, it was down. It was it was below the jacket. Yeah, like a sort of thing you get on seventies dolly birds thing, where it's a yeah, frilly nighty that just covers your ass. Well, David, it was a little and bit more a tasteful than that. There's a bloke on the buses that. chasing you around. <laughs> Benny Hill is chasing you around <laughs> a, a tree. She was a terrifying female Benny Hill with uh, a fucking right. riding crop. Well. Yeah. Um, but uh, where were we? We were. Uh, that, that, that show uh, that story is told on the album on the business cards that you can download free that are on all your seats stuartgoldsmith.co.uk backslash album for any listeners so okay so you were telling that story so I was trying to tell I had some material about that I had some some material that was I guess a combination of the dirty material that a new comic writes and does because it's sort of more successful because there's an element of outrage and combined with something that I thought oh this could actually be my angle is I seem very happy and candid talking about the you know the fringes of sexuality right so I had some of that material and then I tried to write a story through it that would draw it together but I spent I mean I felt like I was trying to bash out a novel because I really spent <laughs> yeah I know you're laughing yeah. I know you're laughing at the words bash, bash out bash out I know I, expect, I, I left it I, I expect I more I from thought, the audience yeah. of this you show you told me this was a high class <laughs> podcast I thought I'm going to leave bash out <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but I put a lot of work into the plotting of the show into what I wanted the narrative arc to be into you know it was really I felt and I'm, I'm sure a lot of comedians feel this of their first hour hmm. years into my career six years or so that I really wanted it to be like my calling card my statement my yeah. here I am this is the this is the story. Yeah. So I put a lot of work into trying to make that all work. At the same time, of course, a lot of other comedians doing their first hour went, I'm going to get all my funniest stuff. I'm not going to spend any time worrying. I spent a lot of time worrying and going, how can I fit? I'm sure that's in there somewhere. How can I chisel that out? Where, and that time could arguably have been better spent writing new and different stuff, trying it in clubs and ending up with a much bigger bag of material yeah, to take from. Maybe. I mean, certainly when I... I mean, the thing is, by the time I was doing an act, it's a bit different for me because I was uh, doing the cabaret circuit like, and loads and loads of gigs on the cabaret circuit, kind of two or three gigs a night and comparing the comedy show, all that stuff. But I didn't actually do an hour until I was on telly. Sure. Right? Okay. And that made a big difference, to yeah. be honest, because 
uh, one of the things about being on telly, it, which was like really, really, I mean, you know, I felt this difference, and I'm sure any comedian could tell you the truth, uh, is that if you go on stage at the comedy store late night and no one's heard of you, even if you were a well-practiced comedian, you still have to win the audience yes, over. Yes. And, and you have to be careful because, you know, one joke that goes badly and they're probably off. Sure. Whereas if you're, people are paying to see you, uh, and they really want you to be good. It's a whole yes. different attitude. That yes. Because there's a bit, I don't know if there is I now. can only imagine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but there is a bit, I mean, I, don't know, I might be nicer now. I doubt it. But I mean, my first gig uh, on, in London was at three o'clock in the morning at the comedy store after there'd been a fight. Um, okay. And it was really like playing to dead people. Really, it was no. <laughs> it was just complete. It was like the returned. in the lake pub. I've been, avoiding, I've been avoiding your Twitter feed. Right. You've been spoiling the oh, return. Sorry, I'm sorry <laughs> about that. I don't really want to see it. Channel Four show about very nice looking zombies. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> And then suddenly, I remember me and Rob Newman doing a gig at this place called The Venue uh, in South London, and, and loads of people turned up for it, and I realised, oh, I can do stuff that might not work, because they'll mm. let me get away with it. Not for that long, yes. not for 20 minutes, sure. but for five minutes, you could probably get away with not... You won't get booed off, because they sure. like you already. And that actually meant you could be more experimental, weirdly, in a way that probably the critical understanding of comedy is the other mm. way around. It's like, oh no, if it, it's got to be the young, obscure comedian who's doing the great things and all the famous comedians are just riding on there. But actually, I didn't find sure. that. I found, oh, now that I'm not so worried that I'm going to get booed mm. off by hard men because I've told one shit joke, I can do some stuff that might be different. So I started doing like an hour, hour and a half at that point. Um, and, uh, and it was fine. It was, you know, I, and I, I'm really happy with the stand-up that I did then. Mm -hmm. But I do think the stuff I'm doing now is kind of more interesting. Is, is there any way, do you think, for, a, for an aspiring comedian or a newer comedian to try and replicate, to try and artificially create that environment where you can take those risks? Without, um, without being famous. Well, because there, I think some of the most exciting comedians at the moment seem to have... I saw Claudio Doherty's show last night, right. which is incredibly exciting, and it made me feel like the first time I watched the day-to-day. -day, I right. went, oh, my God, the rules are completely different. Right. Um, and I wonder if that's because she by some combination of her personality has got the brass neck to stand there and be prepared to fail well, and as a Sarah, result she discovers much more I don't think she's more. a female thing, but Sarah Pascoe said exactly yes. that to me sure. the other day she does set list which I don't know if you've heard of that it's this thing that comedians do now which I wouldn't have the balls to do I <laughs> sure. don't think where they just stand on stage late night here is it the Gilded Balloon it happens yeah uh, it's, it's different this year I'm not sure All right. well anyway it's a thing whereby a set list obviously is something that a comedian or a well let's forget about what bands might have but it, uh, where they'll have just a list of topics that they might be talking about mm. uh, but in set list the show is it just comes up on a screen and they've never seen it before mm -hmm. so it might just say conkers or you know the yeah, I, I had um, what did I have I had uh, Pol Pot Pie Factory Really? Yeah. Wow. They're, they're deliberately, they, they, they try deliberately and you try and, you know, to ensure that you can't do existing material. Right, okay. Yeah. So she was just going off to do it, and I said, aren't you nervous? And she said, yeah, a bit, but she said, the key is not to be frightened of failure. And of course, that is yeah. correct, um, even though someone's just fallen over. <laughs> yeah. uh, is, Impeccable uh, timing. Yeah, the thought of it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's the guy's come off his bike. <laughs> yeah. But uh, I, I think it's someone from your fetish club, actually. But uh, I uh, think that that is obviously key. It's, I think it's hard, you know, it's, Fair enough to say, don't be frightened of failure, but actually, you know, mm. going on stage and dying, which has happened to all of us, is, I mean, dying is a correct 
word yes. to say because it is as close I imagine not having actually physically lost the use of my organs to feeling like it, the sure. death as it could possibly feel so it's an incredibly brave thing to say I am not frightened of that experience if it happens it happens you know but I guess um, do, you, do you think do you think that I mean if you're not sort of someone who's in, in Pasco's camp of going I'm just not going to be frightened of it if you've suffered the fear that a lot more of us uh, have, have suffered I think than haven't do you think that's ever held you back in your in your stand-up practice do you well, feel that one, there are well, more creative very, leaps you could have well, taken there are loads of reasons why I stopped doing stand-up mm. uh, but one of them without any doubt was the fact that stand-up blows everything else out of your head because of that so sure. when you've got a gig that night you basically always have some sense of dread, I, I think. And you, it's very hard to do stuff like I wanted to do, like write films and books and later on see my children without other stuff being on my mind sure. and stuff like that. And I just thought I am not able to live my life either artistically or emotionally while I'm doing this every night of the week, which mm -hmm. at one point I was, you know, I was touring constantly and all the rest of it and doing really, really big venues and all the rest of it. And even if it was that stage I talked about where people were coming to see me, so the pressure was off a bit, it's still very anxiety creating. Mm. So that was one reason why I, I stopped doing it. And that's still there. I mean, when I come back now, you know, I'm still, I don't have no anxiety about doing it at all. Sure. But I think it's fine. I mean, I'm always... I don't know whether you've... I'm, I'm a comedian who I do get sometimes very anxious and then I step on stage and then I'm not. Mm -hmm. uh, but, I mean, Frank... No, I definitely relate to that. But Frank Skinner is a comedian who has no anxiety at all about performing. And actually, I'd never met that before. When I shared mm -hmm. a flat with Frank in 1990 here when he won the Perrier, uh, as it then was, mm -hmm. um, we were walking to the Pleasance from our flat and I got to the Pleasance courtyard and I said to him, you're on in two minutes. And he went, yeah. I couldn't <laughs> believe it. I mean, I sure. would have been pacing about and getting cross with people and having to drink water mm. and go to the toilet and all that stuff. But he just walked on, treasure and walked on. And that's, uh, you know, just the way it is for him. But for, for me, it wasn't like that. And is, that, that. Was there a part of you that was, that was sad about that, that, that would have liked to have been like that? I don't think so, because that wouldn't have been me. I am neurotic, mm -hmm. you know, and I am Jewish, and, uh, and I am the person who I am, and that's the way that I perform. And actually, I get something out of that transformation from mm -hmm. feeling anxious and dreadful and suddenly walking on stage and it's okay. Sure. There's some huge, you know, that's part of the joy of performing for me is that suddenly slipping away. Mm. Um, so, yeah, no, I'm, I'm fine with it. Well, we've, uh, we've all learnt quite a lot about David so far as well as something about Stuart. <laughs> Moving on, however, I'm very pleased with this one. Uh, I'm very excited by the, uh, the squash court analogy. I think it's a great way of putting it, just the idea with, it, with improvising uh, being to return the serve. I think that's, uh, that's uh, a really uh, apt way of, of describing that. Uh, more fascinating stuff on fame and on uh, David's writing technique coming up in a moment. Um, I was famous myself for about three weeks a few years ago due to uh, a television programme and it really unsettled me. I don't know if I'd like to go through that again. It, I found it very, very weird. But um, having said that, if I absolutely had to, I would probably cope. Uh, a couple of your emails now. Thanks for these. You can, uh, you can always tweet me at ComComPod or email me at, uh, sorry, email me info at comedianscomedian.com. Uh, this is an email from Stuart Baggs, uh, who works as a school caretaker and often uh, listens to the podcast as the soundtrack. He says, thank you for introducing me to new comics. Uh, there are some podcasts I skip past if I do not know the guest, but not yours. Uh, and he also goes on to say, I will donate when I have the spare cash. Brackets, I know that's not your aim. Beautifully put, Stuart. <laughs> Thanks for bringing that up. And um, uh, I do think it's funny. I sometimes speak to people who are a fan of this 
show and they say, oh yeah, I, I skip past people I haven't heard of. Trust me, if I'm interviewing someone on the show, they are absolutely worth hearing from. So uh, do, if you've missed any pe- names you didn't know, some of the most exciting ideas, I mean, a lot of you... Um, uh, won't know or have otherwise heard of Alistair Tremblay Birchall. He was one of the uh, the uh, acts I did in Australia uh, earlier this year, and he's very very new. But there is absolutely loads to enjoy from that one, so it is worth going back uh, and listening to those. Thanks, uh, thanks for bringing up the subject of donation. More on that in a second. Uh, and this is uh, from Roger Clark. Uh, your podcast has both uh, has been both inspiring and terrifying. I'd love to do stand up, but it sounds like a hard, hard life. Not an easy option, and the travelling hours scare me. But I already travel a lot for the company, so perhaps it shouldn't scare me too much. Uh, good point. Uh, anyway, the podcast has certainly made a big difference, and that, combined with the improv uh, that uh, Roger's been doing, has convinced me to try it out and see what happens. If I didn't try, I'd never know how good I could have been. Proper thanks, Roger. Well, thank you very much, Roger and Stuart, for emailing in. I'm very happy to field uh, all of your emails. I'm glad that so many of you are getting so much out of the show. I suppose when I started uh, doing this show a little bit over a year ago, quite quickly people uh, started saying, oh, oh, thanks for the show. I'm thinking about giving it a go. And I must admit, part of me thought... Don't, don't do that. There's too many comics already. But I, I think I've gotten over myself on, on that respect. And if it is inspiring anyone to try doing stand-up, then uh, why not? Let's bloody embrace it. I think, uh, uh, I think we can always need, we can, we can always use more good ones. So uh, thank you very much for your energy. Uh, we mentioned, uh, some of those emails mentioned uh, supporting the show. You can, of course, go to www.comedianscomedian.com and click on the PayPal donate button. This is the way to become a hyper goldsmith. That's a new thing I've invented. Super goldsmiths, of course, uh, anyone who uh, tweets to their following about the show. Um, a hyper goldsmith, uh, you simply donate me some money. And in return, you get loads of great stuff. None of it tangible. Uh, most of it, things like the feeling of having support. Well, all of it, the feeling of having uh, supported a thing you like. And on that note, a uh, special mention to the excellent comedy producer David Allison, who created the fabulous This Is Your Trial show and format, which is uh, available now for gigs and one-off uh, tailored events and stag do's and so forth from thisisyourlaugh.co.uk. Uh, David is always first with a new idea, and he's one of those rare people who really actually gets round to doing them. Uh, he suggested on Facebook recently a system of asking for uh, asking from people you know that instead of giving you a Christmas present that you don't that they don't donate to your favourite podcast, sort of like buying someone a virtual goat. Great idea. So fire away if you'd like to do that. Comedianscomedian.com, hit the donate button. You can select the amount you'd like to donate. And I like to think the people who can afford the show, uh, to, can afford to give you some money, pay for the ones who can't. So that's all the blurb. A couple of little plugs at the end. But now let's get back to David Badil. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. 
Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Um, I wondered when you uh, came out to do the show that I saw the other night, um, does any, and this isn't related to your performance, which I thought was excellent, but after a long gap of holding together a solo show yourself, is there a part of you that feels less than match fit? Is there a part oh, of you yeah. that feels ring rusty? Oh, no, completely. Uh, I mean, that show that you saw the other night is I've done solo theatre as work in progress nights four times, four runs. Mm-hmm. So uh, week or five nights or whatever runs. So that you will have seen the 22nd, 23rd performance of, sure. of a show that I started creating last November. Um, and it's still not that much, actually. I don't mm-hmm. think that's not loads and loads. But certainly when I first uh, decided to do... When, when I did that talk, and then about two months later, or whatever it was, uh, I'd put together an hour, actually it was about an hour and a half mm-hmm. of stuff uh, in order to do a show at Soho Theatre, okay. but I was terrified. When, when you say you put it together, but can you be more specific about that, that process of, were you um, collating anecdotes? And well, I, the show is built around stories. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's very built around storytelling of things that have happened to me in the wild and wonderful world of British show business. <laughs> and so I did spend a lot of time just thinking back to stuff that happened to me um, and then it's I also very much thought about what do I want to say mm-hmm. um, and so the movement from story to story isn't just here's another story it's very much following a course of you know this is the particular type of fame that I want to talk about uh, this is how it can get out of hand mm-hmm. this is what it actually does to you as a person blah 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 and um, so yeah I put that together but it was a mess I think when I first sure. did it, it was, was this a sort of uh, was it was that that mess was that from were you I mean did you ever get to the stage were you writing fame in a circle and doing spider diagrams no I can't or what, do what that kind of, okay. I can't do that I've never been able to do that and actually it's pretty I do it because I write novels. I do quite a lot of literary festivals. And actually, you're there with a stand-up version of the question you most get asked, okay, uh, which sure. is, how do you actually write? And by, by they don't mean, like, like, where do you get your ideas from, really? What they mean is, do you use a typewriter? Yeah, what colours do you know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, you know, but do you put yeah. stuff up on the wall? I'm like, no, I don't do any of that. I've done okay. any of that with novels, with the films I've written, uh, or with stand-up. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just write stuff down and then hold it in my head, okay. uh, what I'm trying to create. Okay. So, with uh, coming back to the show again, the I wondered if there was an element by which doing a show that is half stand-up and half lecture provided a kind of safety net for you as someone that hadn't done right a stand-up, you know, hadn't done a stand-up show for a while. Given that, given that stand-up can, I think you've sort of already answered this question with the sort of the, the origin of it in the, the TED Talks yeah. lecture. But given that stand-up can talk about ideas. Mm. And you, it would be possible for you, I'm sure, to do an hour's stand-up show about fame and discuss those ideas, but with less of a sort of lecture, show-and-tell kind of presentation element. Did yeah. that occur to you? Or would that, would you, could you see that happening in the future of the show? Well, I mean, to be honest, you know, I kind of think it is a stand-up show. It's not... Yeah. If you saw my 1997 show, which does use a screen a lot, okay. um, I... I think the reason I use a screen um, is, one is, you know, I, I, I quite like, it, you know, breaking it up with some visual stuff. But the other is, it's on a deeper level, it's to do with the truth thing. Like, I tell a sure. story okay. about Madonna, right? Shall I tell the story? Just uh, you yeah. can, I don't want to spoil yeah. anything from your show, and I don't want to make you do material, well, look, but no, you okay, can okay, illustrate well, it. Well, I tell, I tell this story 
which is the point of the story is not just her story actually I'm, a lot of the what I'm talking about is the strange hierarchies of fame and the humiliations of fame and I talk about how uh, it's very humiliating it can be very humiliating meeting famous people if you're also famous but not as famous as them and I was walking around backstage at Live 8 with uh, Ricky Gervais and Madonna appeared from nowhere have and, you heard of those people? Um, <laughs> well, and Madonna said to Ricky I mean she really appeared, I thought fucking honest Madonna and said to Ricky oh I love your show I would sweep up on set if you asked me to I'd do anything to work with you I am your biggest fan and Ricky rather brilliantly said and you are <laughs> and Madonna rather brilliantly said Paris Hilton right? <laughs> which really raised her in my comic estimation and then uh, because um, uh, she, when Madonna's around clearly big stars appear from nowhere David Williams appeared and she said to him oh I love your show I'm a lady it's so funny and David was really grateful and flattered and then Ricky said oh and this is David Baddiel and Madonna said hi and then just to make it worse, uh, they all went off and her sound engineer went, oh, I like you. <laughs> uh, so that was terrible. But then I told that story and then I happened to be Googling something else uh, and I found a picture of me and Ricky uh, and a few other people talking to Madonna at the time which had a gag in it, and actually, I may as well reveal it. Now, this gag was given to me by Danny Wallace. Okay. You know Danny Wallace? Yes, the, yeah, yeah. He saw the show. He said, I'm not going to tell you what that is. Uh, he said, you, saw, you should say this. He gets a huge laugh. Yes, and I, uh, yeah, I, it makes you want to hug Danny Wallace, actually. <laughs> who I don't know that well. Uh, but... You know, I don't know if you've ever had that experience. Yeah, absolutely. Comedian just suggests something. Sure. And often it's quite... It's a quite sort of complicated moment if, if a comedian does that. Yes. Actually, can I tell a little story? Go on, by me. Yeah, um, about that. Because it's really... Uh, you know, actually, I was doing work in progress nights anyway, and if you're doing work in progress nights, you quite want people to suggest things. So some comedians have come and been really nice but said, what about this? And that's totally fine. Mm. But other times it can be a bit like, yeah, who do you think you are telling me? What? And I had that experience when I went to see Chris Rock. I went to see Chris <laughs> Rock, right? And he was brilliant, but he was doing this bit at the time, this was about six or seven years ago, uh, about how if someone... Uh, pisses you off uh, then it's alright to be really offensive to them if there's something about them you can be offensive about and he, he used an example he talked about someone with one leg crashing into your, his car and then he did a long rant about you fucking one-legged blah 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 you one-legged whatever and it was a funny bit but he had in his show hardly done any reference to being in Britain mm. so I met him afterwards and I said to him sorry I he had no idea who I, I was a comedian. I said, sorry, I'm a comedian. I, I know it's really weird suggesting this, but I think it will go really well if after you've done the whole one-legged bit, you just take a breath and you go, Heather, right? <laughs> like she's been shouting. And this was the time that Heather Mills was an enormous kind of figure in the British public imagination. And Chris Rock really politely wrote it down and then went, why? Right? <laughs> it was incredibly embarrassing. He said, why? And I said, well, you know Heather Mills? And he didn't really. And I said, well, she's got one leg. And I was really wishing I hadn't said it. And, uh, <laughs> and, you know, I think it'll go well and whatever. So I was really embarrassed. I went away. Three days later, Frank Skinner was around at my house. I told him the story. I said I was really, really embarrassed. And he said to me, yeah, I went to see him yesterday. He's doing it. He's saying Heather. It gets a huge laugh. And then he says, some English guy told me to say that. I don't really get it. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? I've, ha I've had that experience. There's a, there's a particular bit I've got in... Um from last year's show that I'm still using on the circuit, which uh, was give, it's and it, the shame is it's the best punchline in the routine because right. it all works and then there's just a little topper on the end that someone gave me right. and you kind of never want to tell anyone and you, you know well I, you know what this is the first time I've admitted that the, which I haven't told you what it is but because it, it involves the screen but actually but the Daddy, was Daddy, it was Daddy Wallace, Wallace gave, gave, it, gave it to me yeah, it was a tiny part but the, the <laughs> truth impulse can't, I can't stop myself there is no way I could ever claim that was mine the best sure. I could ever do is not mention it and now now it's come up 
enough I've got to say it. None of you are allowed to shout Danny Wallace <laughs> yeah, after, yeah, yeah, after yeah. that moment yeah. when you go and see yeah. that moment in, the, in David's show. Um, just talking about the structuring of the show before we, we come on to some questions, um, I was wondering if you could give me an example of something that a piece of material that you wrote for the fame show and then didn't use something that well, was loads, binned, and, and why and what those decisions were well the vast majority of it was uh stuff that in the end even if it got really big laughs i thought was not really about the subject matter because i really okay. really wanted this to feel like uh a piece like mm -hmm. a theatrical piece or like you know still totally stand up rooted but like a theatrical piece that felt like okay we've gone on a journey with mm. david and we've come out of it and, I, and any i mean there was loads and loads i mean some of it pretty on the money but still felt I mean for example I used to do this bit about The Infidel which is the film that I wrote mm -hmm. with Omid Jalili in it a couple of years ago uh, and that's about showbiz and about fame uh, and I talked about the fact that um, when that came out that film because it's about a Muslim who discovers he was adopted and born a Jew that I was really worried about offending both communities well, I say both communities, obviously I mean Muslims. Because, you know, <laughs> what are the Jews going to do? You know, ban me from Carmelis in Golders Green. I'll be okay. Uh, and then I tell this story, which is a true story, which is that I was worried enough at the first ever meeting with the distributor, who had been quite hard to find the distributor, to suggest this tagline for the movie, which mm -hmm. was funny, feel good, and fatwa free. And then one of the distributors, a young guy in the meeting, went, what's a fatwa? And I thought, oh, now I understand why you've chosen to distribute this movie. Yeah. Right? <laughs> um, and, and, I, and I don't do that in the show now okay. because it's a funny story, but even though it's about showbiz, whatever, it sure. sort of doesn't fit into it's my... It's peripherally related. Yeah, it's not yeah. really related to what I'm saying okay. uh, in general. Okay. So, uh, I mean, but I remember... I'll tell you, I could tell you exactly, and this is very kind of mechanical and detailed sure. or whatever, but you might be interested, good, good. In, interested in it, which is it's to do with the link from the previous bit of material. That sort of told me this is a bit of a crowbar. Okay. So the previous bit of material is quite a long bit about how one of the things about being well-known is that if you make a mistake, a small, tiny mistake, it will be magnified into something mm -hmm. enormous. And I use examples of various things that have happened to me in the presence of Russell Brand, mm -hmm. uh, who I'm a friend of, to explain this. A massive, ridiculous... I mean, I basically broke up Russell Brand's marriage sure. due to a small error about... Okay the size of a charity swim in Cornwall. Uh, I mean, I, you, I don't, you have to see the show to explain what yeah. I mean. But the sh it completely is organic to what I'm talking about. And then when I was doing the show that included that bit about the infidel, that bit would have happened. And I mm. remember saying something like, yeah, but the thing about fame is sometimes small little mistakes that other people make can actually benefit you. Yes. And then that would tell that story okay. about the infidel. That feel, that's and that a, didn't feel like a true a, thing to say. That's a linking bit, just gotcha. to get in the story. It's not a real bit, if you see what I mean. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. With the result that because of that level of quality control, the show that you're doing, all you know, you can't level that accusation at it because it's, no. it, it all follows on, it all makes sense. Yeah, it does, yeah. I, I hope so. Um, I am, there's a couple of other things I really want to talk about, but I, I feel there's an opportunity. You've all sat awfully attentively. <laughs> so I'm doing the school teacher thing. Do you have any um, questions? Any questions anyone? for David? This Good. is always a terrible okay. bit. <laughs> it's a terrible bit. I think people might do. Normally, in my experience of asking always if I've got any questions, there's like that bit that we've just done where people think, oh, I have, but I'm too shy. And, uh, then, and then one person does. Yeah, normally someone does. I could be wrong, but does anyone... Let's try again. Does anyone have any questions at all? You look like you do, just the way you're looking at me. That's a kind of Darren Brown thing I've got there. Is I've, I've read your, your body <laughs> language. Cold like, reading. Well, like yeah. Darren Brown, you've basically told him to do something yeah, and instructed true, yeah, him to yeah. do it. Yeah. 
I did used to in the past, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, mark the week in 8 out of 10 cats. I take it... Uh, no, no, I've been asked... To, I mean, I've done 8 out of 10 cats three times. Uh, and actually, 8 out of 10 cats was one of the things... A few things happened to me. I talk about this in the show, why I gave up, uh, you know, performing all the time. And mm. uh, I, I talk about a corporate gig that went really, really wrong. Uh, but actually, it was also... I was on 8 out of 10 cats... And I remember thinking, fuck me, this is like being in a car park where six drunk men are trying to shout louder than each other to prove they're the really funny one. And I really hated it. I mean, I mean the show's still funny, and mm. I like all the people right, but I just thought, well, I can't be fucked. I can't, I can't be bothered to try and prove that I've got the biggest comedy balls in, on this particular table, you know. Um, mm. That's a very odd <laughs> thing. But, uh, but you, know, <laughs> you, on, you, you know what I mean, yeah. I, don't, I couldn't <laughs> think of what the collective piece of furniture for the, balls the was. The balls would go on. Yeah, balls I, would I go on. You should really, know, you yeah. should know, yeah, definitely. <laughs> It'll be some kind of weird solitaire plate. But, yeah. But, so, and Mock the Week, I was actually asked to be a captain on Mock the Week when it first started, and that was absolutely at a time when I thought that is not what I want to do anymore. Um, I, I didn't know that the show was going to be what it was, and the show is very good at what it does. But I remember Dan Patterson, the producer, phoning me up, and I think Billion Skinner Unplanned had just ended. And I'd spent a lot of time on that show, which I am, I am really proud of Unplanned, because I think it, even though it was often not that great, it did, when it had its best, do something which no other show has done, which is it really, really was me and Frank just talking normally with no sort of nothing made up, nothing yes. added nothing on. Nothing rigged. It, nothing rigged. It was incredibly to be, yeah. part of that honesty thing again. Mm. I think I was trying to do a show which really showed who I was. Mm. And obviously still there's some kind of difference comes through. But anyway, so he said to me, I said to him, is it going to be a show where you're allowed to talk properly, like properly in real life like people do, or is it just going to be gag, gag, gag? So no, absolutely, it's going to be conversational and whatever. And something about the way he said it made me think, no, it isn't. Um, and so I didn't do it. And mm. I think I was right. I mean, it's a funny show, but mm. it is not how people talk in real life. It sure. is, you know, one gag, gag, gag after another. And I didn't want to do that uh, for whatever reason. It wasn't right for me anymore. I, I, I wondered whether you talk a lot in the show about Twitter and about trolls and the sort of internet mm. hatred and, and the fact that, that you feel your name became like sort of, uh, you know, this, this character, the invented character yeah. of David Baddiel became a target for yeah. abuse. Yeah. Um, and I was going to ask about um, whether you think that you might have invited that criticism by being a kind of... Uh, uh, a critical stand-up yourself and mm. kind of mocking well, people Well, no, but I, do, I talk about it in the show, yeah, as absolutely. you know. In, in the show, I talk about when I... Which is also true, mm -hmm. uh, the, when I decided I wasn't ever going to do material that might upset people I didn't feel were deserving of it anymore, uh, which is most people, actually. Mm -hmm. I now uh, v never really do any material, that I th or on Twitter, sure. or anything that I write that I think is really going to upset. you think has a human A victim. specific human yeah. face, yeah. I, yeah. Really, I never do it, and it's, it's, that's restricting. Sure. Uh, you know, but I think it's really important to me. Uh, I, I have developed quite a strong sense of empathy, which mm -hmm. has come to me a bit... As whilst I'm sort of a bit on the spectrum, sure. has come to me a bit through being attacked myself. Okay. And thinking, oh, it's really, really horrible. Sure. You know, and these people who are attacking me, they don't have any sense of how what that creates in me. That must be the same for when I attack people. So I stopped yes. doing it. Yes. I used to do it a lot when I was just starting I, out. I, I just wondered whether in the in the the context of doing those um, panel games, 
or oh, sorry, not the not the panel games, but in the context of doing the unplanned show and you being absolutely yourself, that maybe also the reason why you were the target of such sort of you know really kind of angry criticism mm. or apparent, apparently angry criticism might be because you were warts and all, you were you were being entirely yourself and not cutting away to nail a joke. Uh, do, this, do you think this, this gentleman's got a question? So shall we take that and then I'll come back to sure. that? Sure. Just jumping back to the internet. Thing, yeah. Do you feel as a comedian now that with all the stuff that's going on the internet, you are getting sensitised? I'm not quite sure what you mean by sensitised. Oh, censored. Censored. All right. Well, certainly, yeah. There's no question. Obviously, on Twitter, especially, uh, that if you say something that can be taken out of context, next thing you know, you can have the most incredible storm over your head. And yeah, I think that is a bit of a problem. And and I think it was Alan Carr who once said that Twitter is like uh, talking to a maiden art who doesn't understand sarcasm because Mm -hmm. it is true that you can say something on Twitter that is obviously a joke and it will be taken in the most literal. In fact. Here's an example. Actually, this is something I thought about including in the mm-hmm. show as well, but I haven't included it, which is, um, and this probably would have fitted in, but I just kind of felt the show was too long. Um, when ITV did that, an audience with Les Dawson thing that was on a while back, do you see that? They took a hologram. It was a really weird and creepy mm-hmm. show, I thought. A hologram of Les Dawson, and he did the an audience with that he would have done had he not died. So I tweeted uh, at the time, oh, if you can do an audience with Les Dawson, why can we not have the trial of Jimmy Savile? And, <laughs> and, and someone, someone tweeted me, uh, I don't think that would be permissible in a court of law, right? And, and there is no doubt that was not a joke because there was no element at all in which it sure. was a joke. And why bother, in a way, with a joke? Yeah. So, uh, and I just think someone on Twitter, if you do a joke, will take it literally, however obvious a joke it is. Um, and, you know, if you could fall over on a banana skin on Twitter, someone would say you should not have left that banana there. That's bad. Um, <laughs> and so, uh, so it is true that it's a problem, but I try as much as possible to say what I want to say whilst being aware of that stuff. Give, given that you're... Um that you are now, your, you suggest that your, your Twitter usage now is, not your Twitter usage, your use of targets in comedy. Yeah, you, know, you were talking about that before, sorry. Yeah. Yes, yeah, that's okay. Um, Did you think that I was, you said, a, a victim because of the warts and all? all well, thing? I wondered if because I don't you know, really I think there's present- lots of reasons for it. I mean, you know, I think when I first started, uh, I was still doing lots of attacks on people. You know, mm. I mean, this wasn't, you know, when I first, the first year of rights students had a bit of that in it. I, it was pretty brash. Uh, my sort of uh, demeanour was quite, you know, probably quite arrogant, but also as a class thing. Uh, mm. You know, in, in Britain, it's very extraordinary still. Uh, everyone has to be pegged uh, within whatever ideas of class there are. Sure. So, uh, because there is no, and I talk about this a lot in the show, no complexity in the understanding of, personality on TV. I yeah. was pegged very quickly as being middle class because I went to Oxbridge. In fact, my background is really complicated because my mother's a refugee from Nazism and my dad is a working class Welsh bloke or whatever. And I was clever, so I went to Cambridge, but that mm-hmm. is nothing to do with my class or whatever, sure. but I don't care. I would never spend a lot of time saying so. I'm not, because I think it doesn't matter. Yes. It's nothing to do okay. with whether you're funny, nothing to do with who you are, mm-hmm. uh, how much money your parents earn, mm-hmm. you know. But there's a desperation to peg you or something like that, and that immediately will fire into people who want to slag you off for whatever reason sure. or whatever. Sure, sure. Um, I was going to ask um, about whether... Yeah, I've forgotten where I was. I'm yeah. sorry, this is the first time I've done this in, in the run. Uh, we've talked about several things. It's all right, now. don't worry. Um, I'm just stopping now. You, you pour that water. Does and anyone then, else uh, get any questions while Stuart's having a breakdown? No, no. <laughs> I'm just thought, pausing. Yeah, this gentleman has a question. In the edit of the podcast, I can cut out this uh, right, okay, yeah, flat. Uh, so uh, only 20 of you need to know. Yeah, sorry. You want, I'll, I'll scribble. Yeah. Did you, did you, uh, were you at the Falkirk gig? Not afraid not. Why did you not come to the Falkirk gig? 
Oh, okay, that's fair enough. Um, no, I, I thought that you could be bothered. Um, uh, in Falkirk, not really. Although um, I do know Eric Joyce a little bit, the MP for Falkirk, and I, actually, I did come on at the Falkirk gig. And I thought, God, this is the first time I've done the show properly in a proper room because I've been doing it in Soho in front of like 50, 100 people. Uh, and there were a few more than that at Fork, and I thought I shouldn't mess about. But I came on and said, hello, I am your new Labour candidate. And it got <laughs> a huge laugh. I thought, oh, thank God, I can still bugger about with stuff and still sure. get laughs. You know? Sure, sure. Um, we're back in. We're back in the we're show, back, back in, in the room. It's, uh, I wanted to ask about, and this is something that's sort of one of the, my fixations about comedy, is whether given how honest autobiographical your material is um, and that you are expressing yourself, do you feel that you benefit from that expression? Do you feel that your shows and that your work has ever had a kind of positive healing effect on you as it might be when you well, as say... As a person? Yes, well, as a person. When you write a novel and you go, right, I've got that out. I don't know. It's the truth with that. Um, I, I think it's more a compulsion to do it and therefore, you know, bottling up a compulsion presumably gives you cancer. So, I mean, I don't, I'm not yeah, a doctor, <laughs> so don't take that to heart. Uh, don't just do anything you want to do. But I do think, you know, that I, I don't... I mean, it's hard. Like, yesterday, um, the projector went down and I, we had shown up 40 minutes late and we were within inches of calling off the show mm -hmm. and I was backstage having got quite relaxed actually with the show by my standards absolutely in pieces and really really upset and kind of angry and whatever and I did think oh no this is doing real damage to my health again yes, which sometimes okay. I feel stand up can do mm -hmm. yeah, that is why Tommy Cooper died on, on stage that's why Eric Morecambe died young it is an incredibly it's it can a, be it's a, an adrenaline kind of yeah, rush yeah and, then, and I yeah. really I mean I felt and I went when I went on actually I mean I think it, the gig was fine but mm -hmm. I could feel inside I wasn't at all like you should be like relaxed and happy to go on um, and I think so it's hard to say that stand up is actually improving your kind of spiritual or psychic health when sure. shit like that can happen but I do think that uh, it must be there's just must be something about the process of self-expression that mm. I am drawn to and which mm. must therefore be good for me at some level and is there are there any elements to your stand-up well I'll, I'll ask that in a moment um, first what are you planning to do beyond this are you planning to return to a life in, in stand-up after having done this this show and, uh, not a life in stand-up like I used to have I used okay. to have like you know basically I was gigging either before I was well known in clubs seven or eight times a week or when I was doing shows with Rob Newman and indeed Frank you know we'd be talking about touring the country 100 mm. 150 gigs a year no I'm not going to do that because I think I am too interested in writing other stuff okay. um, and also because of the family and all that stuff. And yeah, just because, and the other reason, obviously, uh, and I don't know, how, is that when I was younger, um, I used to occasionally sleep with women after gigs. I'm not allowed to do that anymore. <laughs> um, and I think that is a big reason not to do stand-up anymore. Billy Connolly once said to me, I probably shouldn't say this, uh, especially in Scotland, but uh, Billy Connolly once said to me, oh, the first... I'm gonna, I can't do his accent. I really, <laughs> you uh, probably shouldn't say I that. Really yeah. shouldn't, no, but, I, uh, but he said to me that when he first got married to Pamela Stevenson and then did a gig and then realised he couldn't sleep with someone after the gig, it was really like a shock to him. Mm. Like that was the thing that he did after gigs and I think he described it as his special treat. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and he couldn't do it anyway. And they actually, you know, I mean, I don't wish to bring this podcast down because uh, it's a lot of quite interesting intellectual stuff we've talked about as well as your fetishes. But uh, it is definitely a reason why something goes out of stand-up comedy. Sure. I think I've lost the audience then. No, no, no. Uh, I, no I'm, I, just, I just wanted you to... It's definitely why something goes. It's, I just why, it's, why, it's one of the 
Well, it's a very simple thing. I'm saying the same reason that people in the 60s talked about wanting to be in bands, blah, blah, blah. It mm-hmm. is a good reason, for a, certainly for a man, to do stand-up comedy because it will make sure. you more attractive to women. Uh, if you're funny and you're on stage, you're getting laugh, you definitely improve your attractiveness level to women. And then if you've got kids and you're with someone properly and you can't action that, it's a pain mm-hmm. in the ass. <laughs> uh, so, uh, yeah, so that's probably why I won't. <laughs> but I will be, what I'm planning to do with this show... I'm, not pl- I'm so bad at planning anything, but um, I think the idea is that I will... Uh, I'm doing it in London. I'm doing uh, one night at the RSC, which is kind of gratifying, actually, because I think someone from the RSC just saw it and thought, oh, there's something theatrical about this. There's sure. something, you know, it's more like a show than mm-hmm. just uh, David Baddiel talking, and so it'll suit that space. I'm doing one night there on October 27th, and then four nights, I think, at the Purcell Rooms uh, in November. And then I think uh, I might tour it a little bit like not a proper tour but just do kind of one night in Manchester okay. uh, and then whatever one night in Sheffield whatever the big towns and then what I'm hoping to do maybe is a West End run okay um, you know but I'll just have to see how it goes and can you see yourself um, doing other lecture based shows or, or other lectures the, pre, the pre-show well, lecture th- that think, you did would you do that on other subjects would I you? might do but I think I would um I think I'd use a screen always because I like using the screen. Mm-hmm. I think a screen just uh, mixes it up and it does do a thing for me of providing evidence, which is sort of what I meant by that Madonna bit sure. before we got lost in the Danny Wallace bit. My point about was that was that I like that it helps the truth mm-hmm. that people who are anyone in the audience who might be thinking he never met Madonna, it's bollocks, can then see me meeting Madonna, you know, and actually can sure. see me standing by while she's obviously talking to Ricky Gervais. Um, and, uh, but I am thinking about putting a show together about my mother who is really, really a, an eccentric and unusual uh, mentler. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, I would, I'm thinking about doing that as a, another show, uh, yeah. So I have thought about maybe continuing this idea of doing kind of concept shows or whatever, yeah. Um, I think that's all we've got time for, I'm afraid. We could probably squeeze in one more question if there is one, and if there isn't, then that'll do us. Thank you very much, David Baddiel, for coming to talk well, to us, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you very much, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> So that was David. Thank you very much to him for for coming along. I, I suppose I was a little bit starstruck at the beginning there. David's one of those people who whose work I can still probably quote from when I was a teenager. So um, very kind of him to come on and do the show and be so forthcoming. Uh, thanks to all the usual suspects. Obviously, Dan Melrose for the music, Graham Crockford for uh, technical support, which I'm pleased to say I'm mostly doing myself these days, but he's always there at the end of an email <laughs> if I need him. Uh, and I say this now, having not quite yet removed a little bit of a line buzz on this uh, on this recording. So uh, assuming that this one went well, great. If, no, if it went well, then thanks to Graham. Probably that's normally how it works. Uh, so that's all of that. Yes, uh, I mentioned a couple of plugs. Obviously, David Baddiel's show, Fame Not the Musical, uh, is now on tour, I hear, from uh, from late January, early February next year. Uh, you can get all the details from that by following him at Baddiel uh, or going to his website, and you can follow me at ComComPod, so do get in touch if you like. And uh, there are some tickets available still for myself and James Acaster, each doing an hour of new stuff at the Pleasance in London, in uh, Caledonian Road, uh, on Wednesday the 18th of December. Get some tickets for those from the Pleasance website. Uh, put it into Googles and, uh, and Google that up. Uh, and also, this is far in advance, I know, but the Leicester Comedy Festival brochure is coming out very soon. We've just recently proofed that. On the 16th of February next year, 
at the Leicester Comedy Festival. I'll be doing a live ComCom pod uh, interviewing the brilliant Jared Christmas. And I'll also be doing uh, my by then much more ready uh, work in progress solo show. There's another great live ComCom pod coming up soon next year with one of my most requested guests. I'm very excited about this. I'll give you a clue. It's not Daniel Kitson. I know that's not really a clue. It just isn't. It's someone else quite different and very excellent indeed. So uh, stay tuned. Keep listening to find out more stuff. Feel free to donate if you would like. Uh, if you wouldn't, then do please tell people about the show. That's, uh, that's almost as good as a donation. <laughs> Thanks very much for listening. I'll speak to you next week with, uh, I'll, I'll say it, I'm fairly sure this is the order, Susan Kalman. It's such a good show. I'm so excited about it. Uh, I'll get that one to you as soon as I can. So look forward to that. I've been Stuart Goldsmith. I'll speak to you very soon. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.